You know, I, I don't ever pick the songs at Hope. That's, uh, that's Tim's deal. But, uh, oh, man. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God is he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Risen now in heaven high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. You know, a lot of reason we do a lot of hymns at Hope and kind of modernize them is because people don't write like that anymore. That is beautiful. And I can't sing it. I cry every time we, we sing this. There's a lot of New Testament studies going on right now that wants to do a lot of things with Paul, change him into someone who, uh, that his main point wasn't um, the cross, that, that the penalty and the power of sin wasn't taken care of. And I think some of that is a helpful, uh, those of us who come from a, uh, who are very influenced by Martin Luther and John Calvin and the whole Protestant Reformation, I think that's a good pushback. But my response to that is, I don't think you have to sacrifice the beauty of our Savior to remember the other things in the gospel that we should do for social justice and other things. Um, it's certainly more than that, but it's never less than Christ being the one who broke the power of sin and the one who takes away the penalty of sin. Oh, and as you sing songs like that, I hope your heart just gets busted up. For me, I've been a Christian 20, uh, 23 years now, this April, and I never, can, I never get sick of the simple story that guilty, vile, and helpless me, spotless Lamb of God was he. Anyway, that's totally free. That didn't come out of anywhere. You don't have to pay for that. Uh, we're doing right now, uh, this is another freebie. Uh, we're doing right now as a church, or some of you that are joining, my family. My family, we're taking the, the 31 days of March and going through the uh, different Proverbs. We're calling it March to Wisdom instead of March Madness. March to Wisdom, taking one proverb matches the day. Uh, and so if you're with us, you're in Proverbs 12 today. I, I didn't get there yet this morning. And I'm just, every week I want to highlight, or now it'll be Michael Devereaux next week and Cora the next couple weeks after that, highlight one proverb that's been kind of impacting them. This is the one that impacted me, and I'm still working on memorizing all of it. So I have to bear with me as I read it. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Now it's, it's not here in this proverb, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that what makes a person wise or what makes a person so that they can handle it when someone comes to them and rebukes them is 
A picture of God that, will, that is rock solid. If you have a picture of God that guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God will see, and then someone comes up to you and says, you know, there's something in your life that isn't right, and you just say, of course, of course, guilty, vile, and helpless me, right? I think that's where the wisdom comes from. You don't have to say, wait a minute, no, no, no. That's not true about me because you've got such a picture of yourself that's appropriate and you've got a picture of God being awesome and majestic and graceful and loving so that when somebody comes to you, you can handle it. I wrote this on my blog. Oh, shoot. I left it on the printer. And uh, That's okay. I can, I can summarize it. Or any of those are wireless right now. You could get it. Um, uh, I basically said that how I'm doing in my relationship with God is often an indication of when someone, when someone corrects me, how do I handle it? Am I worshiping me? And if I'm worshiping me, then the rebuke comes as something that you know, will start to undeify me. But if I, someone told me once that even when you're getting nailed, and as a leader, sometimes you're a nice, so you're an easy target, is there a kernel of truth in whatever they're saying that you, can, that you can take from that? Is there anything I can learn from this at all? Even if their motives are wrong. And sometimes people just want to come to you because, quite frankly, they're mean. And they just like ripping other people down. But is there something in there, a little thing, that, that I can take from that and say, all right, I'm going to prayerfully and through wisdom reject about 99% of what you're saying. But is there one little thing I could take from that? That's been a great lesson for me uh, to, to think through when someone comes at me and wants to correct me. Is there some truth I can take from this as opposed to just saying, you're a fool, because that's what a mocker is. All right, that's just the March thing. Now, two freebies in here. This is the stuff you have to pay for. When I was a kid, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. Uh, my mom was a Sunday school teacher, which meant that I went an hour early to, to church, northern Minnesota. And uh, Presbyterians now are known kind of as, uh, most Presbyterian churches tend to be more liberal. Uh, they're more, they, they say things very kindly. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, Presbyterian churches were not that way. They were right at your face, most of them. And they were hardcore. And so my church was in that transition period between the Presbyterians that were uh, kind of hellfire and damnation to the Presbyterians that really didn't say anything. So, pardon me, I'm sorry if you come from Presbyterian background. I did so I can kind of do that. But they... And there's some really good Presbyterian churches. Don't let me go too far here. But So what they had done is they took some of the paintings that they had that were a little more hard to see, and they'd put them in different places. One of them they put on the floor, second floor of the building, was a painting um, that was, ironically, it was on the floor where all the children's classrooms were. And this was a painting of Jesus clearing the temple with a whip. I don't know if it was supposed to mean for the kids as we came upstairs, you know, to kind of put the fear of God into you before you went to your classroom or what. But I remember looking at that picture, Jesus with a whip. It's not a picture, you know, if you do a web search, a Google search on Jesus, you generally won't come up with a picture with him with a whip. You're going to see some images of Christ today as we look at this very incident when Jesus cleared the temple that are going to be a little bit different. Maybe some images that you've never even thought about Christ before We're asking the question in this series, this part of the Gospel of John that we're in right now, from 119 all the way through chapter 12, we're asking the question, who am 
I, or Jesus is asking us, who am I? Who is Jesus Christ? It's the question he's going to completely uh, unveil through this section of the book of John. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to grab one of those little Gospel of John booklets, I hope there's still some around in the, in the pews, you can open it up to John chapter 2. We're going to finish up John chapter 2. Today we're going to look at this, this situation where Jesus is now it's going to be clear, uh, doing something in the temple that, that uh, is, is quite shocking. All right. First thing we're going to look at is the first couple of verses just kind of sets it up. Uh, after this, the this be, is the, if you were here last week, when he turned water into wine in Cana. After this, he went to, down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. Now, it's just kind of an interesting verse. It, it's just kind of there. It just says, if you want to go to the next one, who's back there, Bill? Want to go to the next one? Oh, go to the next one too. There we go. Uh, a little hard to see here, and I got my fancy pointer here whose batteries. Yeah. I'll just throw the pen at it. Uh, let's see. You, there's no way you can see this. So somewhere up there is, is Cana. It's a little bit off here below, below where it says Galilee. There's no way you can see it. Up above there, up on the top of the... the uh, uh, a lake of Gethsemane, can't even read it from here, Sea of Galilee is Capernaum, and if you come down, down to all the roads cross, if you can see down below, sorry about this, you'll see Jerusalem. That'll be important when we come, when we come to this next part. Alright, this is kind of a verse here saying, he went from here and he went to Capernaum. Capernaum, according to some gospel uh, commentaries, they believe it's one of the home, uh, home strategy points for Jesus in his ministry. Just an interesting verse that's put there because we're going to leave there the next verse. Jesus with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. That's the last time we're going to see his mother until uh, the crucifixion. So we're not going to see her again. And he's there with his, uh, his disciples. Okay. There he stayed a few days. Verse 12. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now, just got to stop here for just a second and talk a little bit about the Jewish Passover. You could, yeah, there we go. Um, the Passover was, if you're familiar with the, the whole Exodus story, it was one of the plagues that came upon um, Yul Brynner when, <laughs> when all the firstborn were going to die. And if you didn't put the blood of, of lamb over your door, everyone in your house would die. But if you did put lamb of blood over, or excuse me, blood of lamb over your door, then you'd be passed over. So the firstborn would live. And so they celebrated this event, Passover, all the time. In fact, they came to Jerusalem. Every male over 20 years of old had to come to Jerusalem during Passover. No matter where you're from, you're supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So if you were Jewish and Jesus was a Jew, you went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And that's where he is, that's where he is going. Jerusalem is a very important city. Because of this, it's the place where the temple is. We're going to see that in just a second. The temple is there. It's the place where you, you gave uh, offerings to God. You sacrificed in this temple region. All right, let's, let's take a look. There's an incident that's going to happen here that Jesus is going to respond to. Verse 14, in the temple courts, 
He found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So just stop here for a second because I want you to get this picture in your mind's eye. The temple no longer exists. So I can't take you to a picture currently of this temple. But there are some artist's renderings of it. I want to show you some of this. Go to the first one there. This is uh, the... This would be the, uh, one of the great walls of the temple. And this actually is not the first temple. The first temple was built by Solomon, David's son. And he built that temple up. And then in about 586, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in, sacked the temple, and eventually it was destroyed. It was rebuilt shortly thereafter by someone called Zerubbabel. That was the second temple. Okay, they rebuilt it up. But it really wasn't until Herod the Great, who wasn't a Jew at all, but just wanting to make his name great, decided to rebuild up Jerusalem. And what he did, he did all kinds of things for Jerusalem. He uh, transformed the city, and there was now palaces and citadels, and he built an amphitheater and viaducts and public monuments. But the biggest thing he did was rebuild up, take from Zerubbabel, and, and start to completely refurbish this thing. It was his largest Endeavor. He did a great job. It started around 20 BC and it went well after his death even. This, this rebuilding process of the temple. He made it a huge thing. And when you came into Jerusalem, and I want to show you this on the map, but if you came from Jericho, you had to come up. That's why you say you go up to Jerusalem because it's, it's a higher elevation. You came up until you got to the Mount of Olives and then right before you, woof, you'd see this site. You'd see the temple. Now this is actually, these last two slides right here is actually a, oh I don't want to say life size, it's not light size, but if you see people walking around this, if you can get pictures of it, this is in the Holy Land Hotel, and they have this outdoor, it's, that's what it's called, yeah, <laughs> sounds like something that should be in Graceland, doesn't it? But anyway, there's a, and you can walk around this, it's a, it's a fairly, I don't know what to scale it would be, maybe 1 to 20 or something, but if you'd see people walking around it, oh, I'd say their knees or so would come up to the outer walls and different things. This is an outdoor model of what the temple would have looked like. And it was a massive thing. And you could see these courts on the outside. That's where anyone could go to those outside courts. If you were a Gentile or Jew, you could go to those outside courts. To get inside the, the inner side there, you had to be of, of a Jewish uh, persuasion, faith. And then to go even further in to where you see the, the larger, higher standing building, Inside there was a place called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest one day a year could go in there. And tradition tells us that even when he went in there, they'd tie a rope around his leg and bells on, on him so that if you didn't hear bells for a few hours, you figured that he had sinned in there, and you'd pull him out because this is the very presence of God was in this Holy of Holies. And it's, it's, very, it's a very quick scene in The Passion of the Christ when the earthquake happens and the... the, the, the uh, uh, Curtain, thank you, is torn in two. That is that's making a very strong theological statement. No longer is this, this anyone, no, anyone can come in now. This is torn now. If you remember that in the Passion of the Christ or in the Jesus film, same thing. Okay, so that's what the temple was. It was a place to come. It was a place where it, it signified to the Jewish people that God is with us. This is his earthly home. And especially in this Holy of Holies, this is where the very presence of God was. So this building and this, this, this was a big thing. This was a big pilgrimage. This was Disneyland plus not just the excitement of going there. This meant something significantly to their faith. This is where God himself resigned. 
So Jesus comes and he finds in these outer courts the place where the Gentiles are supposed to be hanging out and anyone can have access to, which is an amazing statement, that anyone can have access to that part of the temple. Okay, uh, that's where he starts to find all these different people selling goods. Let's go back to there. So what does he do? So he made a whip out of cords and drove them from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. What was going on there is in those outer courts, they were selling animals that you could sacrifice. They're providing a, a, a service here. People would come from a long ways away. They wouldn't want to... They wouldn't want to have to buy a sacrifice, or excuse me, to carry a sacrifice with them the whole way. So they'd buy it there. It was just, I'm just giving a service here, right? The other thing is every person, every male had to give half a shekel for a temple tax, the annual tax. And when they came in there, they had to have this right kind of currency. You couldn't just give any currency to the temple. You had to give the right kind of currency. So these guys would swap out money. Now, it, it doesn't tell us this, but probably... This is a very convenient place for this to be taking place. And so probably, you know, we should get something a little extra for it. Now, text doesn't tell us that specifically, but they might have been, you know, they might have been, a, oh, I'm not going to change you a dollar bill for a dollar Canadian bill, uh, but I'm going to take, take a little dig here. You know, I'm going to, as I change it, I'm going to get a little, of course, you had to do something to make a living out of it. Same thing with the animals. They might have been higher priced. Last night, I wanted to go to the high school hockey game. I'm from Hibbing, Minnesota. High school hockey is, is king up there. I wanted to go see one of my neighboring uh, towns, Grand Rapids, our arch rival, playing the state championship game. Wanted to come here this morning and whoop up the northern Minnesota, and then they lost 7 to nothing. <clears throat> but um, so I went down there early to get tickets. And the, 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 amazingly, the XL Energy Center does not sell tickets until one hour beforehand. Pfft, what? That's weird. I realized why, because uh, already there was a bunch of guys outside selling the tickets. I don't know how they had gotten them, but they were already selling tickets. So I approached one of them, and I thought, well, can't be much. They were selling $11 tickets for $40 a ticket. This is standing room only. I, 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 this is amazing. I'd been to some before, but never when it's, since it's been at the XL. When the St. Paul Civic Center never, I don't remember it selling out. You could just go get a ticket at the window and just go in. Seems like it was all general admission, too, then. But anyway, holy smokes. $40 a ticket. So uh, I'm thinking to myself, wow, it's amazing that I'm preaching this passage the next day. Uh, I tried to find a whip. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, you know, okay, fine. I don't know what you think about scalping tickets, uh, um, whatever. Um, I didn't buy them. That was way, way, I mean, I thought a buck or two, you know, over the price. What are you, you're killing me here. This guy wanted $40, $40 a seat for these high school hockey tickets, so we ordered pizza and watched it at home. And had a great time watching Grand Rapids lose 7 to nothing. Now, picture that scene, if you can, that it was outside that, outside the door there. And that something that you needed to come into worship. Now, we don't really require a whole lot here. But picture that scene, if you will. Say you needed a ticket to get in here. Maybe the seating was such that uh, there are actually churches where you do need a ticket on Easter Sunday to come. Uh, 
There are just so many places you have to have a ticket, whatever. We don't have that problem here. But let's just say, especially spring break week, <laughs> lots of room here. But okay, so let's just say you needed a ticket and there were guys out there scalping the tickets. Hmm, that's interesting. You know, these are free tickets. We just gave them up. But we want to make sure if you brought someone, if you said, yes, I want to bring my friend on Easter, that you knew there was going to be a seat for them so that they had uh, just a certain number of tickets and then someone, somehow somebody gets a hold of 100 tickets and they're outside selling them. Some of this is going through Jesus' mind as he sees this. As he walks into the very place where, remember, the temple is God's earthly home in a sense that where you're there, you're to have direct communion with God. And what he sees is people selling things. He sees people exchanging money. He sees basically a strip mall inside of the temple. So he makes it whip out of cords and he drives the sheep and the cattle out. He overturns tables. Now, I know this is going to rattle your cage a little bit. But if, if Chorus is selling money, he's sitting at his table, and I come up to him and I just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn your table over. It doesn't work. Chorus is going to say, I got a lot of coins on here. He's going to push it down, right? Jesus came up to there and flipped the table. He overturned it, and it says it scattered the coins. Money changes, overturned their table. He just scattered them. Boom, knocks them down. Jesus was angry. I mean, this is a picture maybe you've never had in your mind before. He's walking through here. He is angry. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you? Hear that? How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Then his disciples remembered uh, from Psalm 69, this passage, zeal, I'm talking zeal, passion, anger, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was very angry. Jesus was very angry with people who are trying to take this, this place, this holy place, and make it into a market. Now, I love church planting. I love starting churches. I love helping churches get started. I love getting, getting the word out about new churches getting started. But you've got to be really careful with your advertising. I, got a, I, I had a friend of me show me, a, uh, I'm not going to name the church, it's probably one you wouldn't know anyway, but it's here in the Twin Cities. Got a flyer. And the flyer said, is your marriage not doing well? Do you not have the best job you could possibly have? Then come to our church. You know, the way I read my Bible is it says that if you come to faith in Christ, your wife may leave you. Your, your wife may say, you're going to do the Jesus thing? I'm out of here. Jesus said, I've not come to bring mother and father and, and brothers together necessarily. Of course, it's, of course, that if both people are walking with God, that's a great outcome. But it's possible 
that if you follow Jesus, your employer will say, what do you mean you're not going to fix that spreadsheet? You're fired. And not only that, but we're going to take you to court and prove that all these things that in the past that we've done, we're going to take you to court and saying you're the embezzler. And then you go, what's the deal? I thought I said, the postcard says, the postcard says if I follow Jesus, my marriage is going to be great. And, and, and my, my job, I'll just, woo, here we go, CEO time. You've got to be careful with that. You've got to be careful. You can't market Jesus in the same way. You can't, can't placate to, to the consumption mentality we have in America with Jesus. We're going to see that in just, just a minute here. These images, these very famous images, and I don't think these are the ones that were in my Presbyterian church at home because mine were scarier. But these images, maybe I was a wimp too, I don't know. Um, it seems like Jesus was more angry in the picture, but maybe not. These images are very famous ones of Jesus. It's a chaotic scene. He is driving people out. Go ahead and go to the next one. He's confronting people. He's angry. He wants them out of the holy temple. That's the incident. Now, how do people, re how do the Jewish people and those in charge respond? Look at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded him. Now, you've got to understand this. When, when, when the Gospel of John, when he uses the word Jews, almost always he's referring to those who are religious in nature but do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Because everybody was a Jew there, right? Jesus was a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. I mean, all his disciples were Jews. So, I mean, but when he says that, that's what he's talking about. When John quotes, he says, to the Jews, he, he means those who are now kind of in your face with Jesus. And remember, we talk about this often at Hope. If you have questions about who Jesus is, if you have questions about who God is, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. God loves honest questions, but God does not like tricksy questions. Okay, God, I'll believe in you if you can just make a rock so big you can't climb onto it. Those kind of, huh? Okay, those kind of, those kind of, God can't stand those kind of things. And here it comes. To the Jews who, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? Isn't that an interesting thing to ask? It's an amazingly interesting thing to ask. It's this chaotic scene, and then the Jewish people, especially those who are authorities there, are asking him, what sign can you give us to, to, to show your authority that you can do this. Now, isn't, that's an interesting thing to ask. Because what it's basically saying is they're acknowledging that what's happening in the temple courts is wrong. It's like, it's like getting picked up for speeding and the guy comes over the, to the side of your, your, your window there by your car and, and you ask him, what authority do you have to stop me? Right? Because I'm not saying, hey, what do you... You think they'd be asking, what are you doing? They don't ask that. They ask him, what authority do you have to do these things? And then they ask him for a sign. Oh, there's the great thing. Just give me a sign, then it'll be all good. Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. <laughs> Jesus gives them the cryptic sign. John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Isn't that a great answer? That is a great answer. By the way, if you're ever asked to give a sign, just say that. People think that's cool. 
destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Remember what the temple is. The temple is God's presence clearly on the earth. Jesus says, you want to know what the temple is? You're looking at him. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Of course they don't get it. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. That's talking about the renovation project that, that, that Herod the Great was going through and, and actually was continuing even on. And you're going to raise it in three days? See, they're thinking the physical temple thing. Verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of, this is the John, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, is commenting here, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It's interesting that John's kind of admitting here, even when he said this, I had no clue what he was saying. But it's afterwards, I got it. You're the temple. You're the temple. And when you destroy it, three days later, the presence of God is here. Now, in the aftermath of all of this, there's, John inserts two, three more verses. It's very fascinating how this is all inserted there. Verse 23, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. So Jesus did do signs. He did signs that people could see. And because on the evidence of those signs, people, quote unquote, believed. Wow, that's neat. Do it again. Do it again. Make the rabbit come out of the hat. Oh, that was great. Whatever the tricks were, whatever the, those things were, and they're just so into them that they believed. And it's interesting that he uses the word believe here because they don't believe. Look at the next verse. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Now, the end of it uses the word, different word, entrust. It's the same word, believe. There's two words in, in the Greek are the same word. Jesus would not believe himself to them. He would not put themselves in their trust. He would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all them. He did not need man's testimony about man. For he knew what was in a man. In other words, Jesus didn't have to hear from other people about you. He knew exactly what you were thinking. He knew whether or not you just thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to follow Jesus on my terms. He does the neat things. I'm going to follow him. It's the coolest thing. Or are you going to follow Jesus on his terms? Now, if, if you were a Jew during this time and you were in the temple and it's all these Jewish people there and you're under Roman rule, of course one of the things you see this guy doing tricks, he's got to be the Messiah. Let's make him king and trash the Romans. And Jesus says, that's not where I'm going. You want to follow me? You're going to follow me a different way. And you know what? It's probably going to be a very difficult life and it's going to be a life of suffering. Okay? Form a line. That's what it means to follow him. You're going to follow Jesus on his terms, you're going to follow him on your terms. You're going to ask for signs that are just tricksy, or are you going to open your heart? It says that they believed him, but he did not believe them. He did not entrust himself to them. Let me close by asking you two questions in your life. Wherever you're at this morning, first question. Does Jesus Christ have authority in your life 
to clean house. Are you giving him authority way beyond religion? Ah, religion. Don't be religious. Be someone who goes after the very presence of God. Are you, but are you following the real Jesus or the Jesus you've manufactured in your mind? Are, are you allowing Jesus to have the authority in your life so that you listen to him, listen to his voice, and allow him to do whatever he wants and you'll follow him? Does he have that kind of authority? Or are you asking me, well, you know, I'd give you that authority, but you need to show me a sign. Which is it? The second question is, are you, and they're kind of linked, is this last part. Are you believing Jesus Christ on your terms or on his? Will you follow him even if, even, even if the things on the postcard aren't true? Will you follow Jesus even if your life is more difficult? If you're here this morning and, and you're on that you know, right between should I trust Christ or trust not? I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about it. One of the things I always encourage people to do is it's a good thing to be thinking about. Think about it. Jesus told people to think about it. Think about that decision. And know, too, that your life most likely will become more difficult. Now, with all that said, I can honestly say your life will be filled with more joy, too, and purpose. But difficulty. Do you believe Jesus on your terms or on his? Let's pray together. Lord, for some of us uh, in this room, I know this is a hard passage to see you as someone who's angry, someone who looks at the schemes of men, especially when it's regarding things of a holy nature and you have a very strong reaction to them. Oh God, it is amazing to me that you've left our country standing with what we deserve, with how we've abused religion in this country. We have totally abused it. Thinking of talking with a friend this week and just how they were talking about in Africa. And, and the African was saying, you have to understand that in my country, Christianity is big business. It's huge business here too. God, we deserve to have a whip over us for how we've marketed this thing. God, it's, it's become about us. It's become about bigger and better. It's become about slick. God, we just repent of that. God, I pray for my fellow pastors and others who are so longing for church growth that they forget the very heart of the message. God, I pray for them this morning. I pray, God, for that specific church. God, that they would bend their knee to you and not the Jesus they've manufactured. I pray that for this church in our own mind's eye. Lord, you have to lead it by your spirit or we'll just go those those ways too. (coughs) Believing bigger is better and whatever we can do to make money. Oh God, you need to protect us of that. You need to protect us as individuals too in our own lives. May we never bend the knee to money. Bend the knee and so we just start to forget what the whole thing's about. 
They can be sitting in the holy temple of God selling a, a dove and not have a, not have a concern about it. God, you need to do a work in us. And then, Lord God, the, the rest of that passage makes it very clear how people respond to you. God, would you take away from us all the false images we have of you, all the false hopes that we put in you? And if it, if it boils down to simple this, that, that guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God is he, if it, if it boils down to just that, if that's all we have, God, would that be enough? Would that be enough so that we'd worship you? Whether you take our very health and our very families away and maybe our jobs, would it be enough that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed, our own, has shed his own blood for our soul? Would that be enough, God? And so, Jesus, I pray for that as a church, that we'd all have that as enough. Lord, I want to pray for people in this room who the first time this Sunday they may be thinking of wanting to be followers of, of Jesus. And this may come as a very hard passage for them. Lord, I pray that it would spur them on because they see the real you. They see you as a passionate and, and, and you have zeal for your holiness and you will not let it be just trampled on. I pray that that would attract them. Pray you give them the courage today, tonight, this week to say, Jesus Christ, you are who you say you are. I don't want to follow you through anything. Well, for others of us in this room, perhaps we've come to that point in our lives where we've done that before. But Lord, you're calling us this morning to allow you to have authority in our lives. So would we lay it down? Would we lay down our own ambitions and dreams and passions for the future and ask you clearly, Lord Jesus, where do you want me to go? I'll go. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. Just pray this all in Christ's name.